At a time like this, it's easy to see why local news is so important and why that news should be free for everyone who needs it to be. Your support of KCUR makes this essential reporting possible. If you can, please donate. KCUR.org slash give. And thanks. Good morning and welcome to up-to-date special coverage, coronavirus in Kansas City. I'm Steve Kraske. We begin today with Missouri Congressman Emanuel Cleaver, who was an early supporter of Joe Biden's. We'll ask him what Bernie Sanders' withdrawal from the presidential race yesterday means and whether Biden can carry Missouri in the fall. Then we'll turn to how the Missouri prison system is faring during this time of COVID-19. Later, how this era of stay-at-home orders is affecting our relationships with friends and spouses. A hint, the bottom line is not pretty. First, though, the news for Joanna Wilson isn't getting any better. The wife of the man who became Johnson County's first COVID-19 death three weeks ago now has herself tested positive for the virus. She was tested last week after developing symptoms. Joanna, I'm glad to have you back on the show, but I was sorry to hear this. How are you feeling? Well, I have mild symptoms, so I'm not feeling bad. Um, but I knew that they were the symptoms of it, and um, so I um, did not end the quarantine that I was supposed to end, the last day being Saturday. And I should have been able Sunday to go get my own essentials finally, but I knew to stay on, and then I got the news from the test or about the test on Monday morning. And then started Monday morning again, another quarantine. Hmm. So how are you holding up? Well, considering that I came home from the hospital when my husband died to a very empty house. And, you know, it's not just that he wasn't home yet. It's a very empty house forever and have been here all by myself since. Probably pretty good. Hmm. But... So how are, you, <laughs> how are you managing the day-to-day? I mean, getting necessities, handling the regular household chores, all those things. Well, the necessities haven't been a problem because people will run get whatever I need that way. What has been a problem are the things that you would your family would come in and help you do. Like, I haven't done anything with bills. I haven't done anything with insurance yet because just to find all that stuff. He was paying bills because when he retired, he said, I'll take those over. So I gladly gave them to him. All of that stuff is there and it's, I can't even focus on them yet. Hmm. Um, but um, if I could, if my family were here, my kids would be saying, well, I'll do that. Let me do this and I'll do that. And, and we would together get these things done. Um, I just finished the the real obituaries for the funeral home just a few days ago and the kids getting, um, you know, we put pictures up or trying to put pictures up on the funeral home. You know, there's been no hurry. There's been no funeral, but just getting that stuff done. If my kids were here, we would have had all that pulled and done, but, um, you know, together and we would have things accomplished. So it's really slow because just focusing on those things and getting Everything takes longer in the in this position I'm in. Plus, things I thought I knew where they were are not where I thought they were. 
you know, it's just all about the grief process being stuck right. in amongst all that. Well, that's Joanna Wilson. She lost her husband, Dennis, to COVID-19 a few weeks ago. Now she's come down with the symptoms herself and has tested positive. Joanna, we're all going to be rooting for you. All the best to you. Well, thank you very much. I do. Missouri Congressman Emanuel Cleaver was an early supporter of Joe Biden for the Democratic presidential nomination. The former vice president is now the almost certain nominee in the wake of yesterday's announcement that Bernie Sanders was withdrawing from the race. National polls show that Joe Biden uh, leading President Trump in a head-to-head matchup. But can Joe Biden beat Donald Trump in Missouri? That's a big question now facing uh, the former vice president's campaign uh, as he weighs this this big bid now as he goes against Donald Trump uh, in the fall election. We're going to have Congressman Emanuel Cleaver with us in just a couple of minutes. He's back in Missouri's 5th District, and he joins us now. Congressman, so nice to have you. Welcome. Good morning. Good to be with you. You were an early supporter of Vice President Biden's, and I'm wondering why, Congressman. Well, uh, because I already knew uh, the Vice President. I had worked with him uh, before uh, he made the decision to run, and uh, I, I, I really placed loyalty at a, at a very high level. And so um, I went with somebody that I knew. I thought somebody who would who had a chance to win Missouri. Uh, he and, and President Obama came very close during that first election to, to, to uh, winning Missouri. And uh, uh, when I uh, told him yes, I would support him, I said, the only thing I'm asking you to do is to come into Missouri and campaign. And he said, you got it. Uh, and I think we, we I also felt like uh, when, when the final race is up, uh, the public would like to be able to defend, to, to choose, I think, uh, someone uh, who is uh, going to be a unifier. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we are we are a fractured co- uh, country right now, and so we needed somebody who who even if you didn't particularly want to vote for him, uh, you knew that he was a good and decent person. You know, Congressman, I can't help but wonder how much heat did you take for your early decision to back the former vice president? There were a lot of candidates in this race. Did you take some heat for it? I, I did, uh, primarily from uh, the, the the Sanders people. Uh, but uh, you know, uh, in in this business, you've got to you know make decisions. I think, and sometimes those decisions are painful, and you're going to take some gruff for it. So I, I, I knew that I would, uh, but. Uh, you, you know, look, uh, I think people, I know I do, uh, I always appreciate people who are with me at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And those are the people I never forget. And, uh, you know, people who, who jump on the train when it's almost at the station uh, or people that you, you appreciate, but uh, the people who were uh, with you when you, you know, just first got on the train or the ones you're going to think about and, and, and want to uh, have yeah. around and take advice from. You know, Congressman, I can't help but wonder, once upon a time, you were a politician who broke the mold. You were the first African-American to win the, the mayorship of Kansas City, Missouri. Why is an older white male the best choice in 2020 when so many Democrats these days are emphasizing the need for diversity and a candidate who is diverse him or herself? 
Well, I, I think, uh, first of all, under normal circumstances, uh, this would be a time I, uh, that, that I think I would want to go and pick someone in their uh, late 40s or 50s uh, or maybe even younger. Uh, but these are not ordinary times. And uh, remember, uh, you know, uh, this is a, a time when we, when the public wants somebody who's stable, somebody with whom they've already developed some comfort. Uh, there are no questions about whether uh, he can handle power or she can handle, handle power. And so, uh, I, I mean, Joe Biden is that kind of person. He's Uncle Joe. I mean, uh, and if you ever see him in, in, in a, in a uh, public setting uh, where, where he's not in a rush to get on an airplane, it's just absolutely amazing. Mm-hmm. So because he wants to talk to everybody, he's not going to use the uh, his, his bully pulpit to call people names. If we go, if we continue to, to, to um, divide ourselves or have people work on the division, uh, you know, it's just going to take a few more years before I think the United States loses its rightful place as the leader of the free world. We, we're almost there now. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, uh, he, his age doesn't matter. I think we, we, we're one of the few nations that becomes preoccupied with, with, with the age of leaders. Uh, in, in many places around the world, people are seen uh, as, as, uh, who were up in age as having w- wisdom. And uh, look, Joe Biden is, is, is uh, 70 something years old. Oh, I think he's uh, going to uh, run as hard as anybody has seen anybody else run. I mean, he's well, not. Well, speaking going of to... that, he'll be nearly 78 come election day, just off by a couple of weeks, meaning that he would be 86 at the end of his second term. Is the country ready for an 86 year old president? Well, um, I think we'll, we'll see. And we, we've not. Uh, Heard the vice president. I have not heard the vice president, even in, in private settings, declare that he was going to run uh, for two terms. He's just, he's running for this this term as president. Now uh, I don't have any inside information, uh, mm-hmm. but I'm I'm saying that you know he is he's not one of these guys who are saying, look, uh, you know, my second term I'm gonna I want to do this and that and this. Right. So. Um, I'm not. Sh- I-, I think. I think he's running for president for right now, and, okay. and that's what I think many uh, Americans want is a president for right now, for this moment. How do you think the pandemic is impacting this race? I mean, what is it doing to Joe Biden's prospects, Congressman? What is it doing to the president's? Well, you know, it, it depends on one's perspective. Uh, uh, you know, we're still campaigning. I, I spoke to uh, a nationwide group of his supporters via phone uh, on Monday. Um, uh, they're asking me to do another one. Uh, so he is he is working. But I don't think that the public is that uh, interested in politics right now. I mean, you know, most people are, are having ca- cabin fever and, uh, and frankly don't want to hear about politics. But the, make no mistake, uh, it, it has created a problem in terms of the vice president going out and doing retail politics, which is what he does exceptionally well. But, you know, uh, a lot of people uh, are probably making decisions based on uh, on uh, the, the president going on television every day. I mean, mm-hmm. 
that that uh, uh, that may that, that may be um, Waterloo for uh, the president. So I mean, it's, it's a different kind of campaign, and I think, uh, as I said to to the, the, the folk last uh, earlier this week on the phone, we need to also look at the possibility that we may not even have a convention. Uh, and you know, so we've got to come up with, with unique ways in which we can touch the public. You mentioned earlier uh, that uh, Joe Biden has promised to campaign in Missouri. Uh, Donald Trump, as you well know, won Missouri by 19 points in 2016. Can Joe Biden carry Missouri? Uh, what's your best sense? Well, uh, I, I think he can carry m- m- Missouri uh, because, look, nobody's going to be... No- Nobody hates uh, nobody hates Joe Biden. I mean, you know, you may not want to vote for him, but you, you know, there's nobody going to wake up in the morning and say, "I got to go vote and get and just try to get that horrible human being out of here." That's not going to happen. And in, in, and in the uh, final days of the campaign, I think people are going to be looking at somebody, uh, except for the the people who are rapidly uh, not looking for peace and and, and uh, unity. Are going to be look at looking for somebody who can bring us together in a, in a crisis uh, or just in everyday uh, movement of life in the United States. But as you so, well know, Joe Biden favors abortion rights. He would nominate pro-choice judges to the U.S. Supreme Court. That won't play well here, will it? Well, uh, you know, remember uh, he and uh, President Obama almost won the state. Um, so. Uh, uh, there are a lot of things that won't play. I represent, a, uh, people probably don't know this, I, I represent a huge uh, rural uh, area of Kansas City, uh, of the Kansas City metropolitan area. A- area. Actually, I go all the way about 127 miles from Kansas City. Mm-hmm. And um, I have uh, represented the, that, that community for uh, some time now, eight years. And uh, I think I'm received quite well. And I had there was some novelty with me going out there at first. Mm-hmm. But I, I think but now the one thing that people are, are not prone to like out there are outlandish uh, positions, and it's a more conservative area. And Joe Biden is one of the few Democrats who could go even go out into those rural areas uh, with some comfort of uh, of a appreciation uh, of knowing that there's some appreciation of the on the part of the people out there uh, a lot of people couldn't do that uh, and and they don't and I think but with Democrats we've made a terrible mistake in conceding uh, the rural conceding rural America to the, uh, the other party that's Missouri congressman Emmanuel Cleaver talking about Joe Biden's prospects in Missouri so you think he can win the state congressman I think he can win the state. He's got to win. He'll have to win Kansas City and and St. Louis big. Mm-hmm. Uh, historically, remember, Kansas City and St. Louis used to determine all of the elections. Right. Uh, right. And and uh, if we have a, a large turnout in Kansas City and St. Louis, um, I, I think uh, if he can run about even a, a slightly under fifty percent in the rural areas, he, he wins. Congressman, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. Good to talk with you. A term often used for prisons and jails these days, how about ticking time bombs? 
prisons and jails are said to be amplifiers of infectious diseases such as COVID-19. Why? Well, one reason is because social distancing is nearly impossible to achieve in a correctional facility. Cells are small and they're often shared. So what should criminal justice agencies be doing to protect public health? We're going to talk to Ann Presythe now. She's the director of the Missouri Department of Corrections. Ann, thank you for taking some time with us today. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. You know, you lost your first inmate to COVID-19 this week. This was an inmate from the Kansas City area who was the first inmate in the state to test positive for the virus. He had been housed at the Western Reception Diagnostic and Correctional Center. That's the one up in St. Joseph. What else can you tell us about him? Uh, Really, he had um, other medical conditions um, and you know, uh, he. we took all the necessary precautions that uh, were necessary, and we were monitoring him for conditions not COVID-related initially and didn't find out that he tested positive until he had been uh, uh, admitted to Truman Hospital. And... Um, you know, I mean, it's a it's a tragedy, and we're very sad for the for the family. Are you aware of any other inmates anywhere else in the system who have contracted this virus? We do not have, as of as of right now, we do not have any additional offenders that um, are positive with COVID nineteen. We consider ourselves extremely blessed and fortunate. I was going to say, as I said in in the introduction here, you know, prisons are seen as ticking time bombs when it comes to a virus like this. I'm wondering to what extent you're anxious these days about the possible spread of coronavirus in your system. Well, you know, uh, I have an incredible team that we are focused on this every day. And so one of the things that we are doing that I'm very proud of, you know, when people think of, of prisons, and especially when it comes to our offender population, they become very concerned at a time like this that we may uh, restrict their movement. And when that happens inside an institution, it's generally for security reasons, and the Offender population calls that a lockdown, and it's associated in a negative way. What we have done is we've established what we're calling a viral containment plan, which is very different than a security lockdown. And so we're educating the offender population on ways that they can be safe themselves. We're restricting their movement and group sizes so that we're keeping housing units together. We're limiting the number of people that come into that particular housing unit, and we're trying to avoid as much cross-contamination across the entire facility so that we can keep, uh, should the virus come in, we have it isolated to a particular area. So if you think about a housing unit, it has four wings traditionally in it, and we keep that housing unit going to dining together, going to recreation together, time outside together, and we keep them separate from all the rest of the housing units. So we have a detailed plan Mm -hmm. to address should the virus come in, but we've also been focusing our efforts on how to keep the virus out. I'm wondering if these inmates have regular access to things like washing their hands, Anne. 
oh, they most certainly have access to washing their hands. They, you know, we make our own soap and cleaning supplies, and we have plenty of those distributed among all of our facilities. We've given them strict guidelines for how to keep their housing unit and their cells sanitized and disinfected. They have cleaning supplies to do all of that. Um, so, And we've even put specific people in charge to make sure that when uh, they are cleaning certain areas or sanitizing, that we're doing that on a regular recurring basis. Uh, to what extent are inmates being tested for COVID-19, and to what extent are guards being tested, Anne? So our correctional officers are being tested. Uh, we are screening for every person who comes into a facility, and we've been doing that since sometime in March. We've started this week checking temperatures of everyone coming into the facility as well. Uh, when it comes to testing offenders, we're testing when symptoms present themselves. And I believe the numbers as of yesterday, we had tested 41 offenders and 32 of them have tested negative and nine were pending or eight were pending. And then we have the one that tested positive uh, back in March. But again, no active inmates that you're aware of have tested positive as of today anyway. No, sir. We are keeping close tabs on that, and uh, we're keeping that data available uh, so that we, you know, we're prepared to let folks know. We've had a very strict, uh, I would call it rigorous, communication schedule that when we've had positives with our staff uh, throughout the state, which we have in our probation and parole community, um, and then also with our uh, Missouri Vocational Enterprises, we let the specific locations know that we have had a positive and we've notified all of the staff that have been in close contact with that individual. We're sending them home for the 14-day quarantine period. And then we send a communication out to all of our staff to let everyone know where we've had positives. But I'm also happy to say that we have had no prison staff test positive hmm. at this point either. Ann Presythe is my guest. She's director of the Missouri Department of Corrections. When you say you're screening inmates for COVID-19, is that the same thing as a test? No, sir. We are, well, yes. When, when we test an inmate, we're performing the test that is required to determine if someone is positive for okay. COVID-19. Okay. Uh, but we're screening every employee or every person, every vendor, every truck driver, every um, sheriff's deputy, whoever happens to be coming into the secure perimeter, we're testing everyone prior to coming into the prison. I'm wondering to what extent... I mean, you're... excuse me, we're screening, screening, I don't mean to use the word test, we're okay. screening and we're doing the temperature take. I'm wondering to what extent your uh, staff of guards and other uh, members of your prison staff these days are ha have said, no, I don't want to work anymore. It's, it's simply too dangerous to work inside of a prison during a pandemic. You know, I can say that I am really very proud of how our staff have responded. 
are people prepared for this type of crisis? And corrections employees rise to the challenge when crisis hits. They don't run away from it. They run toward it. And our staff are an incredible example of what true first responders do, and we need them. Uh, the the governor and the general assembly uh, passed a stimulus package yesterday or a supplemental budget yesterday mm -hmm. that included um, pandemic pay stipend. And it is for those people who are working in situations where positive virus tests exist. And so we're excited for more information coming on that that we can share with our staff. Um, but overall, we are in a very good position with our staff. We need more staff in general. Uh, and I put in a plug that we're hiring. Uh, but traditionally, the Department of Corrections has always had a pandemic plan in place, as well as other natural disaster plans so that we know how to respond and react mm -hmm. when this type of event occurs. And, and just very quickly here, in-person visitation, just to clarify, that's off the table for the time being. It is, yes. Yeah. Uh, we've, we've extended that until May May 14th. Okay, that's Ann Precythe. She's director of the Missouri Department of Corrections. Ann, thank you for taking some time. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. After a short break, when we come back, we'll talk about your relationships, your friends, your spot with your spouses, and what COVID-19 is doing to all of that. You're listening to up-to-date special coverage, coronavirus in Kansas City. I'm Steve Kraske. And welcome back. I am Steve Kraske. Is it possible to be socially healthy right now? In a word, our next guest says the answer is no. One of the big issues for so many people is that our daily routines have been knocked off course and we need to get back on track. So many people have seen their sense of community stripped away. What can be done about it? Step one is to listen to Jeff Hall, who's a communications professor at KU, who studies relationships and social interactions. Jeff, it's nice to have you. Thanks for taking some time. Absolutely. I'm glad to be here. So is it possible to be socially healthy right now? Unfortunately, I really believe that probably not. Mm. I mean, I think that what's happening right now is we're being faced with such an incredible, uncertain, scary, and kind of unknown sort of uh, problem. And what we want really badly is to be able to count on our normal sense of routines, our sense of connection with one another, and kinds of things we can count on to make sense of that. And all of those have been changed, and we don't know when it's coming back. So that's not a very optimistic way to begin this conversation. I wish I, wish I could say <laughs> otherwise. <laughs> but it's simply, I, your point is it simply is what it is right now, right? That's right. And, and what, what, what I study is this idea that we have actually what's called kind of a a social routine that kind of contributes to a broader sense of a social biome, which is kind of a set of healthy practices that we have around interaction. And that includes online and offline communication. It includes who we talk to and how often, the content of our conversations. And in a normal, typical day, we have this routine that kind of keeps us in a sense of stasis, homeostatic sort of understanding of who we talk to and what part of the day. And it includes a variety of people, you know, the people we see at work and school, the people that we have at home. But right now, we're all facing the situation where all of the normal sort of routines that we have are being taken away. 
And what we're trying to find is some way to restore them. And mm -hmm. so for a lot of folks right now, they're finding themselves in a lot of anxiety and stress, but just not that sense of, of comfort that they can get from their social routines. I thought it was interesting that that phrase you just used, that, that people need a variety of social interactions each day. What do you mean by, you know, a variety of social interactions? Right. So the concept here is that we actually have a lot of research that suggests that the number of social interactions that we have in any given day is associated with our global well-being. And what I mean by global well-being is like a sense of life satisfaction and um, you know less loneliness and less depression and um, less anxiety. And what happens is, is those variety of interactions contributes to a sense of well-being because we get to hear different perspectives. We have a different sense of community, a sense of inclusion by people who are not just the people we have in our house, but people from work, you know, also our hairdresser and the person we catch up with uh, at the grocery store. So these are a variety of different people. And that variety contributes to our sense of community and also our sense of placeness, right? Our belongingness in a place. Right now, we're basically trying to sort out how that feels when we're all stuck in one place. <laughs> the variety of places are gone. And, and those normal stuck, people we see every day aren't here anymore. I was going to say, if you're stuck in one place, what do you do if you're getting sick of the people you're stuck in place with? <laughs> right, exactly. And I think we're all going to actually encounter that. And one, one thing that I think I'd point out here is this is really going to be a challenge for people who do not have home conditions, which are very uh, pro-social, right, that are, are good for their social well-being. And so some of us, like myself, uh, my wife and I have two kids and we're home with them. And I'm spending a lot of time with my kids and with my wife. And although it's challenging to kind of meet my work demands, I'm really finding it. There are a lot of upside to the sense that I'm mm. spending quality time with my kids particularly. Yeah. Um, but there are people who live alone. There are people who live amongst uh, people who they feel uncomfortable with or even threatened by. And I think that this is one of those conditions where there are some perks and benefits to people who have a good place to nest in. But there are a lot of harm being done for folks who either have nobody or have unhealthy connections at home. Well, let's talk about that. But first, I want to invite our listeners to get involved in this conversation. How are you getting your social needs met during this pandemic? Do you feel like your relationships are struggling or thriving? What are you doing? 816-235-2888 is our phone number here, where you can tweet us at KCUR up to date. This notion, you know, that... that uh, People are home alone right now, and they have nobody. Strikes me as such a a, a jarring and, and, and it's kind of a scary idea. You have said that this is a good time to offer kindness and concern to people who have nobody. Talk to us about that. Absolutely. So we know that throughout the industrialized world, there's really an epidemic of loneliness. You know, this is something that's happening across uh, the whole globe. And prior to the pandemic, um, I've had conversations with you know, health researchers from Canada and the UK who have taken kind of government initiative to try to address these issues that our people are, are really not uh, finding the kind of connection that they need in order to feel um, really, really at their best self thriving. And interestingly, it's not just older adults, although those are the folks we tend to turn to and think that are more lonely. It also includes young adults. Um, and so we knew that this exists beforehand. So instead, what I'm trying to think through is how to help people make good practices, how to encourage them during this time to reach out to one another. And I think there is some good news in that sense. You know, I was just reading in the New York Times today that it, the highest day of phone call traffic, so what we're doing right now, I'm on a, on a phone calling you, mm -hmm. um, was actually doubled every single day this week from its peak time last year, which is on Mother's Day. So people are making more phone calls, twice as many phone calls than they do typically on a Mother's Day right now, every single day. 
And we're seeing an increase of internet traffic through particularly things like Facebook, which is increasing 27%. And this combination of these things tell me that people are actually trying to find mediated mechanisms to go out and reach out to one another. And I would just recommend to folks to continue to do that. That is probably a really important practice right now. People are reaching out and that's a good thing. I just can't help but wonder about the quality of those interactions if you're doing it via phone or via social media like Facebook. I mean. That, that'll get you so far, right? But not all the way home. I think you're right. In fact, I'm, I'm working on uh, finishing up a book right now. And one of the things that we know is that video chat, which is uh, Zoom and FaceTime and uh, Skype and things like that, and then phone calls tend to be the closest that people can get to having face-to-face -face interaction. But they have three qualities that make them a little bit more challenging. One is they tend to be more energy intensive. And what I mean by that mm -hmm. is we tend to actually really need to focus and pay attention more on those calls. Um, which means it's kind of draining to do it. So if there's anybody out there who have done like 15 Zoom calls in the course of one day and are like, I am spent, like I'm getting plenty of social interaction and it's Zoom and it's no good, um, I kind of know what I'm talking about here. Um, but the other part about this too is we know for uh, from that research also that those things sometimes actually peak our sense of loneliness hmm. because we feel that we're seeing a person, but we can't have that kind of uh, you know connection through touch and through closeness and all that. So the one practice that can really help if we're relying on the phone or Zoom or Skype to make those connections is to actually do something that people in long distance relationships do really well, which is to be comfortable just kind of sitting in place with it. So I hear stories of people finding happy hour, uh, be able to sing it with their friends or they're watching TV together, but through Zoom or through uh, Skype or FaceTime. And these are actually pretty healthy practices because they reduce the kind of honest of having to focus and talk all the time, but just have someone in the room with you at the same time to share that moment of connection and just having company. So you're, you're talking about just having people on FaceTime and maybe not being engaged every minute in interacting with them. Am I hearing that right, Jeff? That's correct. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people in long distance relationships know how to do this really well. Um, some stories are actually they do things like, uh, you know, they keep it on even if they're not talking. You can just see the person walking around their kitchen making dinner huh. or, you know, sometimes they even fall asleep together, which is quite lovely. And I would say that, you know, these practices seem strange to people who are not familiar with having to navigate their most important relationships online. But people who know how to do it well in long distance relationships have shown us some suggestions. Well, let's get our listeners involved here. Have you turned to social media to keep in touch these days, as Jeff Hall is talking about here? Uh, how satisfied are you when you get off FaceTime or Zoom? What's it feel like? 816-235-2888 is our number here, or tweet us at KCUR up to date. You know, I've had a funny feeling my, myself in recent days um, when I'm meeting with one of my classes at UMKC, and... During the clash, you've got 20, 22 faces arrayed in front of you, and you're interacting with them. And then the class comes to an end, and very suddenly people start reaching and clicking off you know, to end the Zoom session or whatever. And within a few seconds, you go from being surrounded, I'm putting quotes around that word, surrounded by 22 people, and then suddenly you're back in your office all by yourself again. And it feels pretty strange. And it's I, I don't like that feeling. No, it's very jarring. Yeah, it's very and, jarring. That's the word. Right. That's a great word for it. Yeah. Right. And if we think about this from the perspective I was talking about before, about that idea of the variety of different connections and the kinds of things that are part of our routine, you know, when I go to work each day, the three people who share my office suite, um, I see them and I greet them and I ask how they're doing. When I go and teach my classes, I come early and oftentimes chat with the students and, you know, listen to their conversations and right. sometimes contribute. 
And on the way out, you know, they come up and they, they ask me questions about assignments or otherwise. And all of those things smooth my sense of con continuity, mm -hmm. right? My sense that I'm engaging in and then engaging out of this kind of sense of social routine. And those things actually make me feel, broadly speaking, like I'm included, like that I'm cared for. And this is a place that I belong. That jarring sense that here I am right now, and then all of a sudden, it's taken away and I'm back in that kind of lonely room potentially. That is kind of what I think is the, of the downside of all of this. Right. And that's partly also why I'm a bit pessimistic that it's a sufficient um, substitution for the kinds of things that we're accustomed to. Right. You know, we're, we're talking here about, about the use of social media and these new tools like Zoom. You know, for a lot of faculty at UMKC and I think across the country, this was a big leap to work uh, their way into Zoom and meet with classes online. I can't help but wonder about older folks who are 70 or even 80 and trying to navigate uh, technology at their age. Is it even an option for some people? Or, no, it's or, or not. Should, should they consider it in a way maybe they haven't before? Yeah, and I think that that's a good point about internet connectivity, right? Familiarity with technology, being able to have a consistent Wi-Fi connection. And we know that there is a, you know, a digital divide that exists for folks that don't even have the skills or the technology. Um, one thing that I encountered that I found um, disheartening is that I had several students in my, uh, graduate, or my undergraduate capstone class at U University of Kansas who didn't have access to computers um, at their home where they were sheltered in place. Right. And I was, I mean, I was taken aback, but I, cause I thought, oh yeah, students definitely have access. Well, they had access at KU. Could they go to the computer labs or right. the libraries? Right. They don't have that at home. They were using their phone primarily, you know? And so to try to actually compose documents and do the work on, on a cell phone is, is just quite difficult. But maybe this is a time for older folks to open up to the idea of trying something because I'm yeah. going to tell you, it's, it's not that hard. And if I can do it, a lot of people can do it. Definitely. And I think that there's a lot of evidence that, you know, that kind of bridge between generations can happen through something that we really need, which is connection. You know, I think that there are really fun examples out there of people moving their, you know, music lessons online, that they're taking things like doing right. their Pilates classes online through Zoom. They're connecting with their grandkids. You know, they're doing puzzles. I think there's all of these things are very promising and exciting. And I think that the way out of this, you know, although I have a kind of a bleak assessment of where we're at now, as long as this endures, the most important way out of this is to actually try to build routines that feel comfortable hmm. and that make you feel as if you're still connected, knowing that those things are going to be unevenly distributed amongst people who have really great connections to begin with. Yeah. And some people who need us to reach out to them and to make efforts to try to keep them involved and connected to one another. I'm visiting with Jeff Hall. He's a communications professor over at KU who studies relationships and social interaction. We're talking about how to maintain healthy relationships during a pandemic, even if you're living by yourself. Uh, our phone number, 816-235-2888, or tweet us at KCUR up to date. Let's go to some calls and Richard from Overland Park. Richard, you're on the air. Uh, it's Steve. Thank you so much for your uh, your programming. I just think that uh, NPR KCUR is just a lifeline in this time. So I really appreciate the work you do. Oh, I thank have, you, Richard. Uh, I do meetings. You bet. I do meetings um, every single day uh, over essentially what it is is Zoom or FaceTime. It's my company's own uh, version. I work for a tech a tech company, and what I've found is people's interactions when they're in the Brady Bunch boxes. I feel as though they assume that they're being watched 
they pay more attention. They're more acutely aware of what you're saying, and I am judging this by the responses I am getting to questions that I am asking. So I wonder the take of if there's any kind of data on just a normal plain phone call or the interaction where you're seeing someone, uh, if that drives human nature to pay more attention and to um, really put their best foot forward. And I'll take that off the air. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Richard. Yeah, what a great question. I mean, yeah. that's kind of what I was referring to about the idea of them being kind of high energy interactions, right? They're a little more kind of intense, uh, intense and draining. Some of that has to do with the idea that we're watching our own nonverbal behavior as we do it. You know, there are, there are some really fascinating ideas about what we do when we're very aware of our self-presentation. We tend to behave in kind of odd and sort of uh, intense sort of ways. Even the idea of when we kind of walk past a mirror, we want to look at ourselves in the mirror. So I think that when you don't, when you have that technology enabled and you can see your own face on there, it brings a lot of attention to how you look to other people, which is both draining and I think your, your caller is right. It makes you very attentive to what's going on in the circumstances and how you're looking in there. And I would point out as a contrast, right, when I have a class of 25 students in my capstone class, you know, a solid portion of them are paying close attention or very attentive to the discussion of what's happening. But there are a lot of them during the course of that time sort of drift in and drift out of attentiveness and awareness. And that's totally normal. Like no one can spend an hour mm -hmm. and 15 minutes at a a high point of attention. Mm -hmm. So if you think about it that way, these Zoom interactions, both at work and at school, are quite tiring for people to have to be part of them. And there's a chance that people will become more accustomed to this as time goes on. But that's that's an, kind of an unresolved question of whether or not it will become easier as time passes. You know, there's also this idea, and I think you've talked about this too, that you know, so many interactions these days with people tend to be high energy, they tend to be anxious and stressful, and after a while, that carries with it its its own burden, doesn't it? Yeah, bingo. So one of the things that I wanted to also be able to address to every everyone out there is that it's so important right now to also find alone time, right? So if you're in a job or you're having to be on those calls all day long, whether video calls or you know phone calls for voice, or you're at home, as I am, with kids who you need to be homeschooling while you're trying to do Zoom calls at school, mm. while you're trying to do all these other things. Right. You really need your, to do your best to, to be able to check out and be alone. One part of a healthy social biome that uh, me and my colleagues talk about is the importance of feeling comfortable being alone for periods of time to recharge and regroup. And so for folks who are highly social, socially satiated, meaning there's a lot of social interaction because of their job requires it or their kids are demanding, you need to be able to find time to kind of protect yourself. So that's going to be a problem that's different for different people. Some people are, are, are really, really badly wanting interaction right now, but some people just need to be able to say, it's okay to check out and disappear for a while, take a walk, you know, watch a TV show, check out, take a nap, whatever it is that you do to recharge, have that time alone if that's possible to build into your day. I think a lot of people find that to be kind of a strange idea and, and, they, and you're saying they shouldn't. No, not at all. Mm -hmm. It's yeah, they should. In fact, it should be something that we welcome as a way to actually indicate our social health. One of the more fascinating things that I, we came up with in the study that I'm referring to, which just published actually this year, is that how you felt when you were alone was a better indicator of your social health than how you felt when you were, were in interaction. So if mm -hmm. I was alone, let's say that I contacted a person at a random time during the day and they were alone. And I asked them, would you like to be in conversation with someone else? Do you feel that your social needs are met? Or do you feel a strong need to belong? 
people who felt that their social needs were met and alone tended to have less loneliness, higher global well-being, more positive emotions, and less negative emotions, and even more so than the characteristic of in-given conversation during the day. So there's something really powerful about mm -hmm. this idea that when we recognize that we are filled up, so we have too many interactions, and we need to read a book and chill out or just do something different for a while, that is a very healthy social system. How to maintain healthy relationships during a pandemic. That's our topic right now. Again, our guest, Jeff Hall. He's a communications prof over at KU. You're listening to up-to-date special coverage, coronavirus in Kansas City. Our phone number here, 816-235-2888, or tweet us at KCUR up-to-date. We had a, a message, uh, a question over the Twitter here, Jeff, and the question is for parents, is this an acceptable time to loosen restrictions on technology for kids so that they can spend more time virtually fostering their friendships? Definitely. You know, if, if there are opportunities for kids to be able to do things where they can talk to other kids, I would really encourage the parents out there to recognize that that is such healthy time. You know, they are really being restricted in, in the opportunities to connect with people of their same age groups. And that is really not good. Mm -hmm. I mean, friendships at this age and throughout your whole life are important, but particularly for, for children and for adolescents. So I would say loosen them up. And I would even go a step farther and say, try to encourage them. If you can find ways to actually set up, a, a you know, a, for example, for my nine-year-old son, we set up um, Zoom calls so they can play Magic the Gathering, the card game, over a computer. Hmm. And so although they don't do it online, you know, there are, of course, that option through websites that offer that. They actually show each other, you know, their, their cards and what they're playing through the Zoom connection. And I think that that connection is critical. So there's also can be done, of course, a lot of parents are familiar with this idea that you can have connection or uh, through playing video games and you put on a headset and you can talk and hear somebody in, in the headset, your friends, I would encourage to do that. And yeah. in some ways, not only should we loosen that, I think we should even go a step further and encourage it because playing games together, having fun together, being able to laugh, we need these things right now. I was going to say, we've, we've had so much uh, negative attention that's been placed on social media outlets, particularly Facebook in recent years. Um, so maybe the question is, what in your view is a healthy way to use social media and what's an unhealthy way that maybe we should think about avoiding? Yeah, that's a great question. So one of the things that I, one of my research areas is to figure out what is the kind of two, two issues. Is using social media in itself good or bad for us? But second, you know, what are the healthy practices that we can use? Generally speaking, I would argue that the amount of time that we spend on social media itself is a very poor indicator of how good or bad it is for us. Instead, it really depends on how you use it. So let me, let me give you an example anecdotally. I have noticed, you know, with that 27% jump in Facebook use over the last couple of weeks, I have noticed from my own Facebook feed that there's a lot more what I would call kind of interactive Facebook use. And that includes people posting materials, photos, and jokes, and people responding with comments and responding in ways that have private off, offline chats. These are actually really good social media practices because they're asynchronous, meaning we can get to them when we get to them. Right. They tend to be very much person-centered, right? They're, they're at the person who posted it, and they tend to be really good practices for the sense of engagement. The practices that we want to avoid is the constant scrolling. Mm. So right now, I think, unfortunately, another way to use social media, it's always been this case, but in this time particularly, 
you can also just scroll, scroll, scroll through your, your feed and see things that upset you politically, things upset you about, you know, the rates of death or infection, the worries that we have about the future. And if you're just continuing to ingest all of that negative, scary, uncertain information, it tends to be a poor practice before the pandemic. It is definitely not a good practice now. And you need to just say, okay, I've been doing this already for 20 minutes. Shut it off, put it away, do something else. Let's go back to some calls here at 816-235-2888. David from Olathe. David, you're on uh, with Jeff Hall. Good morning. Hi. I go ahead, David. To can you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay. I think it's a mistake to assume that, you know, if I can use a computer, anybody can. Um, even before the pandemic, there are lar large parts of the population who cannot. Many, and many of the elderly, many of the uh, disabled uh, uh, do not have a computer, cannot use one, or frankly are afraid of computers or resent computers. Right. And we've known this for a long time. The people who are already socially isolated because their relatives and children all communicate by Facebook or social media, and they're left out of the mix. Um, I think that um, uh, the uh, community, students, volunteers could do a lot at this time to reach out to those people. Some of them are living alone, some of them are in nursing homes or, or residential facilities and um, create ways to help these people see how to communicate, get email, see pictures, and use the World Wide Web. Well, that's a really interesting idea to me, Jeff, this idea that maybe younger people could be a, a computer technology core to help out older folks. Yeah, it, it, I, one of the things I was really impressed by is in the UK, there was kind of these mutual aid groups that were popping up and encouraged by their government all across the area to do just what your caller is talking about, is to reach out to one another, to take care of the needy in their communities, to try to find ways to be kind of one, a sense of unity, a sense of purpose. And I, I really agree that right now, and I've, I've heard anecdotally of churches and uh, pastors, you know, creating call lists of people who say, here are some members of our congregation who can't come in right now and right. have limited mobility or disability or otherwise, or, or no access to computer technology. Let's call them up. You know, as long as people still have a landline or a cell phone that they can receive phone calls, I, I don't think that we need to just change over and, and make everybody go onto Facebook or, you know, make everybody start using video chat. What I would say more so is that, you know, keep relying on that phone call does matter. You know, phone calls got us very far for about 90 years before the Internet was ever around. So I don't think that we need to think it doesn't work. So I, th I take your caller to heart, though. I mean, it, it, is, it is the right thing to do right now is to think through in our mind who might be isolated or alone right now in our, in our concern network of people who we care about, mm -hmm. and can we make a concerted effort to reach out to them? I think your caller is right. Well, David, hang on a second. Our producer is going to grab your number here just for, uh, for some information here. Well, give us a little bit of a silver lining here as we begin to wrap up this conversation here, Jeff. What hope do you have for society you know, coming out of this crisis? Is there anything good that uh, could come out of this time? Is there a lesson to take away here? Definitely. I mean, I, I would offer three things. One is 
the sense of community right now is has very palpable. People can feel a sense that I'm trying to do right by my community. And I see things in Lawrence where people are trying to raise money for restaurant workers, where they're walking around and meeting their neighbors from a safe social distance. Mm-hmm. You know, they're getting they're they're saying hi to everybody that they walk past in the street and, and wishing them well. These things build our neighborhood communities and they may endure beyond the coronavirus. And I hope that they do. The second is I see very promising is we can remember that being able to build practices of connection. And what I mean by that is, you know, call-ins to your loved ones over the phone or through video chat are actually ones you like now and, and things that you can do. You know, maybe uh, grandchildren and, and um, grandparents will find routines that work for them. You know, my, my father is, is currently reading to my son the Lord of the Rings trilogy and they're doing that over zoom and and that's special and unique and something that could endure this you know the the last thing that i would offer here is that it may for folks who are sheltered in space with their with their loved ones with their children with their um you know with their uh, romantic partners that they can actually build stronger relationships during that time because we need that sense of connection and support so go out and show gratitude you know give each other hugs be close to one another for the people who are able to be hugged physically and for people who need virtual hugs call them up and make sure they're okay yeah so this is not a time to give up hope absolutely not we need it more than ever to actually put our energies towards something because i think a lot of people like myself are feeling like what am i supposed to do what can i possibly do to make a difference this is way bigger than what i've got but there are actually lots of things that we can do to make sure that we support those around us I want to thank Jeff Hall. He's a communications professor over at KU. He studies relationships and social interaction. Jeff, some great advice. I really appreciate you taking some time with us today. Yeah, it is my pleasure. Thank you. Stay safe. We've been asking to hear how you're getting through these unprecedented times, whether it's a random act of kindness or something else, and the voicemails have been rolling in. Here's what two of you shared with us. Hi there. My name is Cindy Kellerman. Um, I work for the American Red Cross, so I am still busy, and I am not afraid. The thing I feel the most is just, I feel bad because I have a full-time job and others are just desperately needing income. Uh, So nothing has changed really for me. I do go into a lot of hospitals delivering blood and um, I see a lot of masks and uh, more of the medical side of it there, but I just go in and out. Uh, As far as a random act, I was really touched by a retired lady that's in our church group. She's 89 years old, and she said she saw no reason why when the government gives out money that she should get any because she already gets her Social Security check, Um, and she is planning on giving it to someone that might need it a lot more than her, and I thought that was very touching, and I think a lot of this probably feel that way. I do, working full-time. I feel like when I get a check, I should probably save it and use it to help someone else and um that's it so thank you bye-bye hi steve this is sandy nielsen calling from kansas city missouri the thing that's getting me through this rough time is hope for change i think if anything the covid19 virus outbreak has brought to light 
pre-existing problems in our society, and they're just being highlighted now during this rough time. So how I'm getting through the day is hope for change, and more specifically, change for better health care or universal health care and addressing the wealth gap. Thank you so much for everything you do for your listeners. Well, thank you to Sandy Kellerman and Sandy Nielsen for leaving us those voicemails. If you have a story or thought you want to share with us, we'd love to hear it. You can leave a voicemail at 816-398-8207 with your brief story, name, and where you live. Or email a voice memo to KCUR producer Mackenzie Martin at mackenzie at kcur.org. We'll put both of those contacts up on our webpage at, uh, on the up-to-date page at kcur.org. You've been listening to up-to-date special coverage, coronavirus in Kansas City. We'll see you tomorrow. I'm Steve Kraske.